When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, hello. Hello. How are you? Good and we should tell people about our evening. Well, it's the strangest thing. So we're not currently in the same room. We're recording remotely. But the yeah. other night, I went to an event at Abbey Road Studios. Yeah. Um, it was hosted by Universal Music. There was a bit of discussion. There were some musical performances. There was a young man called Dupree McCoy, a singer called Olivia Dean. It was great. And then as soon as the performances finished, somebody said to me, have you seen that? Ed is here. I said, what? They said, yeah, Ed, Ed's here, but um, I think I think he's just left. He, he had his head in his phone. And I said, are you sure? I mean, this makes no sense. Why would Ed be here? And then my friend John, who'd organised the event, he showed me a text message that he'd received from the security saying, there's an Edward Miliband at reception. He's not on the <laughs> guest list. Should I let him in? I must be on one of the invitation list so i thought i'd pop in support the music industry and well it was it was a lovely thing and then as soon as i found out you were there i i felt slightly aggrieved and thought why why didn't he invite me but you know it was actually a sort of classic me thing which is i arrived late very late was in there for one minute while the performance was going on then the government made an announcement about onshore wind so i left went into the cloakroom where i was on the phone for 20 minutes uh i had a nice chat with courtney who was working in the cloakroom uh she was very nice sometimes i listen to politicians being interviewed and um i I hear a journalist ask a question and and then they answer as if they've been asked a completely different question i I seem to remember at the start of all that i said (laughs) I felt a little upset that you hadn't invited me. Well, let me tell you, Jeff, I'm really glad that you've asked me that question. <laughs> I, and look, what we're saying is that, you know, there'll be lots of parties. We want you to come to those parties <laughs> with us. Um, 
There'll be some parties where we go separately, but over the party cycle, <laughs> uh, you're going to come to our parties. It's it's a gift. This is what I can say. Your ability to dodge a question is is a gift. Yeah, and then at the party, I talked to these two very nice interns from Universal Music. They sort of bounded up to me quite enthusiastic about seeing me. Although I did notice one person asking for a photo with you and not with me. And then I was thought I had to go and I didn't want to be rude. So I said, oh, would you like a photo? And one of them said, yes. And then I said to the other one, would you like a photo? And he goes, no, no it's okay, actually. <laughs> <laughs> but who was you, who were you getting the photo with? Oh, I am um, about a lot of really nice people, including Mark, who used to listen to my radio show on his way to school with his mum. So it was a picture for his mum, Jill. Oh. You know what I think is interesting is that I didn't invite you, going back to your question yes. and then now having tried to work out the answer, partly because you hate parties. Yes, I do. This is true. So so the notion that you'd want to come to a party... Do you know what I've decided what the best thing for me would be? Because an invitation fills me with dread and anxiety. However, I can also, as we've just witnessed, feel very affronted if I don't receive an invitation. There should be something called a non-vite where... If somebody's going to something or throwing a party, they get in touch with me and just say, I'm extending a non-vite. I'm going to this thing, but you don't have to come. I'm throwing a party, but you don't have to come. That way I know I'm still being... Well, that that way I know that I'm still being thought about and considered. Would you... I mean, that is an interesting idea, but would you not feel then some kind of weird obligation to have to go? No, I'd, I'd feel off the hook. That's interesting. But I wouldn't be able to perceive a slight... Now, should we talk about what we're talking about this week? We should. We should mention that you had quite a busy week this week, so you're not on all the interviews, but you do, you do pop up. And this week we're talking about social work, and we've never covered this topic before. But it's such an important role that social workers play in Certainly tackling is. injustice Certainly and inequality. Is. And we thought that within it, there's you know, undoubtedly some challenges and some reasons to be cheerful that we could explore. And we're talking to three great guests about the profession and the work that they do. Ruth Allen, who is Chief Executive of the British Association of Social Workers. Lisa Hackett, who's Chief Social Worker at Frontline. And Ryan Wise who is the co-founder of something called Crescendo, which is an initiative trying to introduce small changes to allow social workers to do their jobs better. So, uh, yeah, it's a good one. What's your reason to be cheerful? My reason to be cheerful, and this is just sort of designed to give you humour at my expense, is that I branched out in culinary terms this week. Oh, yes. And made some spring rolls. Yes, thank you for reminding me. Ed sent me a picture of these spring rolls, and um, which say they were well done. Jeff, why don't you tell the audience what you think of the spring rolls? They reminded me. I, t- I sent you a picture immediately back. I don't know how familiar people are with Star Wars, but when Luke Skywalker returns to his home to find the charred remains of his aunt and uncle, they, they sort of looked a bit, a bit like that. I mean, it's a little bit rude, isn't it? <laughs> but never mind how they looked. How did they taste? They went down well. My wife really liked them. Because she is a harsh critic. She she doesn't pretend to like things that you've cooked. She doesn't. They were actually really nice. And I think it's because I was using rice paper, so it didn't brown. So I kept thinking, why is it not browning? I think if you use more like a, like a dough, like a pastry, then they brown like a spring roll you'd get in a restaurant. Does that make sense? Yes, yes. You know, they were really quite good. I'm going to do them again this week, actually. Great. Make sure you send me a non-vite. Watch this space. What's your reason to be cheerful? My wife. Oh. She, she's basically 
going to make Christmas easy for people who are just really struggling to uh, to know what to buy as presents? Go on. Well, she's performing at the Soho Theatre in London from January the 18th to 21st. Uh, her show, Hard Feelings, which was a hit in Edinburgh. It's very funny. I recommend it, despite the fact that there is a somewhat humiliating story about me in it, as, as, as well as many other harrowing details about our marriage. Basically, I'm using my reason to be cheerful as an excuse to plug her show, in, in case you hadn't noticed. That sounds great. Yes. Honestly, I loved her show when I went to see it. Well, this one's even better. See you there on opening night. Yeah. Maybe you could bake her a tray of celebratory spring rolls. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Well, to begin our conversation with me now is Chief Executive of the British Association of Social Workers, Ruth Allen. Hello. Hello. So pleased to be talking about social work with you. Well, it's so interesting because I think it's rarely talked about except at points of crisis. And actually, I wondered if that was a good place to start because everybody knows the job of social worker exists. But I think what the range of that role is and what people are doing day to day is really a mystery to most people. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. I think most people associate social work with a very narrow area of work, particularly things like child protection, maybe safeguarding, protection of people, children and adults. Social work's very broad. It's one of the things that brought me into social work was the wide range of opportunities to work with people in different circumstances with different kinds of needs. Changing public perception and increasing public understanding of that wide range of areas that people work in, whether it's with older adults, whether it's people with mental health issues, drug and alcohol, fostering, end-of-life care, you know, and many, many others. Social workers are kind of everywhere. And it's often going under the radar for the fantastic work they do. And unfortunately, yeah, hit the headlines when things go wrong. And is there such a thing as a, a, a typical social worker? I've obviously answers no, but maybe statistically, is there a type of person who tends to gravitate towards it more? Well, it's a very female profession. About 85% of social workers are women. Wow. And we do want more men to come into the profession. But having said that... Let's really value what a fantastic profession it is as well. We know that feminised professions don't always get the same attention and we think that things like pay and status. And we see that in wider social care an awful lot, don't we? And I think that does to some extent affect social work. It's very diverse in other ways as well, particularly in relation to ethnicity. But we still see those glass ceilings for women and we see barriers to progression for black and minority ethnic colleagues as well. What was your personal motivation for entering the profession? Social work was suggested to me, actually, in school by a careers advisor when I was 16. And I rejected it completely at the time, thinking, no, this wasn't for me. I told the careers advisor that I wanted to do something that was related to kind of social change, social justice. I was quite kind of political. And I didn't think social work would really allow me to do that because I saw it as that like individual going into people's private space, probably stereotypes in my head of it being kind of a bit sort of interfering in people's lives. And it was only later after um, a slightly circuitous route after I'd done a first degree and had a consideration of what I was going to do um, that I realised that actually social work would allow me to bring social justice ideas and into practice and it would combine the interpersonal skills and knowledge that you gain with being able to really work on some of those sort of structural issues that create 
the problems that people face and help to address them at an individual level. But also there's this thing called macro social work, which is where, you know, social workers get involved in things at a policy level or a political level as well. And it became apparent to me that I could really get involved in all of that. And what's the balance between the amount of time a social worker's role is interventionist versus the times when it's when access is sought by a member of the public? It's a good question. So I think one of the problems that we have seen is an increasing uh, focus on social work for statutory intervention reasons. So when things are going really awry, when there's a serious concern, and maybe that family or that individual has not had as much early help as they might have had. The extent to which social work is defined by interventions in people's minds is part of the problem that we have. So it's not that the system is set up more for intervention, it's that the public perceive it more in that way. I think the system has become more and more set up for intervention. If you mean by intervention, where social workers need to go in, maybe with other professionals as well, because there's a really significant problem that's arisen. If you have a system that is underfunded all the way along the pathway, then it's the crisis parts that retain the funding because they're the statutory bits of work that need to be done. And potentially more people getting into crisis if they're not getting earlier help. And then what people experience is social workers being those intervening people. So it's not just a perception issue, it is a system issue as well. But we've got fantastic models for, for early support now, fantastic ways of providing early support. And, you know, I'm always just so impressed by all the social workers I meet at all points in their career who are continuously and persistently excited by what they do, feel really rewarded by it, and are really committed to doing as much as possible in that prevention space, in stopping things getting worse, trying to stop things happening again. That's the things that really motivate people. What I'm struck by is what a complex role it is and requires so many different skills. Is, is burnout a problem? Burnout is definitely a problem for social work overall. We have got a lot better about talking to each other and to ourselves about self-care. Our own research shows that people report long additional unpaid hours. We know that there's, there's reasons why people do that for their commitment and their sense of you know, determination to see things through. But actually, that leads to burnout. And it's not just about stress. It's about how stress is then handled. And it's about the support you then get because it's a stressful occupation. That's That goes without saying in places. One of the things that social workers always say in any survey is how much they value their colleagues and the peer support that they get. So a strong sense of community can really help with that. But we need to do more because we don't want experienced people leaving the profession. We need to keep that wisdom and knowledge. What are the things... Aside from money, which of course is is always the big thing, but what are the things that tie social workers' hands behind their backs in, in their ability to be effective? It's hard to do social work if you're in an environment where the culture and the management doesn't really encourage you to build good working relationships. So the things that get in the way are over-bureaucratisation, not having enough time, not just not having enough resources, but not having enough time to spend with people um, to make that really meaningful 
intervention as early as possible, which might actually then prevent things going wrong in, in, in the longer term. And it's not just about money, because actually, if, if a system's very focused on crisis intervention, late stage interventions, that's expensive. So there's a lot of money that go, is going into that. We would like to see more investment you know, further upstream, absolutely. But it's the lack of the preventive resources. So if you can't organise better housing, if you can't organise this community support because the local charities have closed down or they're too stretched, those are the sorts of things that that really interfere with social workers being able to do all that they want to do to, to build support around people. Internationally, where do you see a different approach that you like some aspects of? I think in, in a number of European countries, you see a, generally a stronger Sort of social support, if you like, for social work and social workers being more embedded in earlier kinds of help and embedded in communities and being more, not exactly as a universal service, but being more available at earlier points. I was hearing from the General Secretary of the International Federation of Social Workers recently about social workers in Myanmar, you know, working kind of undercover to work with people who are disabled, people who had the sorts of needs that social workers need to address, but having to do it kind of undercover because they were working in ways which the regime didn't didn't appreciate and saw them as protecting, uh, supporting people's rights, maybe of minorities, and literally having to go undercover. That's not where we want to be. But you do see remarkable social work bravery in really, really difficult regime situations. I'm wondering, like maybe people listening to this who are thinking about their own careers, what do you see in young people wanting to enter the profession or have recently entered the profession? I'm always really impressed and motivated when I meet with people coming into the profession. I talk to university students quite a lot. And we know that people come into social work for a variety of reasons. Sometimes it's their personal experiences in their family or in, or with somebody they know. Um, they've reflected on the social injustices in the world and they see this as a really key way that they can help. And they are so often totally motivated and full of ideas and full of creativity. And that's what's so invigorating. I think if people are interested to come into social work, what I would also say is you get the value and the reward of the work. Very, very strong values base. That is a common values base in the profession. And you also get a great community. You get a great community of social workers as well that you can be part of. And those things, I think, make it very rewarding. And they do, you know, do keep us in the profession even when times are tough. So you've got an awful lot of skills that you can then bring and a really strong sense of values and identity, which you can carry with you into other roles. Ruth, thank you so much for joining us to talk about just laying out a, a role that everybody knows exists, but um, I think is so mysterious in, in some ways to people and for giving us such a clear view of what the challenges are, but what a lot of causes for optimism there are within social work. Ruth Allen, thank you. Thank you very much. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. 
Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. So we're going to talk now to Ryan Wise, who is co-founder of an organization called Crescendo. Ryan, could you just tell us a little bit about what Crescendo does? Yeah, sure. Thank you for the introduction. I'm Ryan. I'm a social worker. And for the last eight years, I've been working in and out of social work practice. But for the last two years, I've been focused on Crescendo, an organization that I set up with two friends about a year and a half ago. So we were really fortunate to receive some funding. I suppose the one principle behind it is doing something to enable excellent social work to thrive. And what I mean by that is relationship-based social work. What we do know is that when social workers have more time to spend in families' homes, side-by-side, children and parents or caregivers, that's when the magic happens. And that's where the, the impact and outcomes can be positive. But what we find is that actually it's the reverse of that. So the British Association of Social Workers, for example, which really inspired our work in Crescendo, they've got a campaign called the 80-20 campaign. And and fundamentally, that sets out that 80% of social workers' time is spent doing administrative tasks behind a computer, and 20% is actually with families. Crescendo's mission is to do something about the over-bureaucratization of social work and the fact that we have social workers consistently saying they're not able to do the work that they came into the profession to do. Let's just take a step back before we dive into the detail of that between some of the parallels between social work and, say, nursing. I I think what strikes us in thinking about this episode is that both careers chosen by compassionate people who want to make a difference, but nursing is seen as an incredibly respected and valued profession. I mean, there's a big question of whether it's sufficiently financially valued and respected by the society, but but social work isn't held in the same esteem. And, and I just wonder why that why you think that is. I would be interested in what you two think as well as non-social workers, actually. But I guess, for me, it's the tension that's at the heart of social work, especially when we think about children and family social work. It's the tension of care and control. So if we think about two contrasting paradigms, society often wants social workers to intervene when things aren't safe and well for children. But then when we do, it's too much. 
So we're constantly navigating this tension of being involved when we need to be, but also that being proportionate. And I, I personally think society struggles with that and holding those two competing ideas in mind. And if I think about my engagement as a constituency MP with people around social workers, it's often around the question of child welfare, whether their kids have been taken away, what the role of social worker has been, and so on. And so is that the inherent tension in the in the job? Yes, yes. To, to put it bluntly, yes, I suppose. And it's interesting because of late, we've had a, a massive review of the whole system, the independent children's care review into how the system is functioning. And they proposed quite an interesting idea that when things get to a certain level, so a child protection level, you actually have another social worker join the system. So on a more kind of lower level of risk and more to do with welfare and support, you'd have one social worker and one that becomes involved when there are protection issues. And, and that's, for me, the reason for that was because the context changes when the risk changes and the relationship changes. So you might be supporting someone, but then you have to have conversations about, actually, I don't think this is good enough or safe enough for your children. And parents, understandably, find that hard to kind of make sense of. So it's an interesting idea to bring in. We'll, we'll see if it actually happens. I suppose on that as well, if you're dealing with a medical professional, you're putting yourself in the hands of their expertise, whereas I guess people often feel that they, they know more about their own family and their own family dynamics. Indeed. And what we try and do, especially in, in the way that I've been taught, is we try to act in a way that positions people as experts in their own lives. But again, the contradiction is that we might have to use our power in a way that families disagree with. So we can spend time being skillful with how we navigate relationships. But at the end of the day, we can make choices or recommendations that families disagree with. I wonder, as a society, do we have a clear idea about where, where we stand on like, a family's right to private life? Are we more laissez-faire or are we more paternalistic? Like it's, it's a tension, it's a scale and people have different ideas. But I wonder as a society, do we actually engage in these ideas to really think about what should be the role of social workers? Because it's, it's not consistent, right? Pe people say we're overly interventionist and some say we're not. And then it changes with governments and different politicians as well. Is there a version of social work which d doesn't begin at the point of intervention because families are hard as jeff and i find in our <laughs> relationships are hard yeah yeah um is is there a version of I mean, it obviously that, he gets on my nerves so much <laughs> that, that supports families and builds techniques and strategies before the point of intervention before the crisis point 100 percent, 100 percent, and that's yeah i i think i've inadvertently kind of played to a narrative here that we only become involved when things are at a point of high risk and that is not the case that a lot of our work is kind of trying to intervene early. But as you both might know, in terms of the, the bigger kind of structural funding for early help um, and services that can support families before a crisis, I suppose, comes to fruition, they're gone. It's the, de the services are depleted. So I suppose the thing that we do need to talk about when we're talking about social work with many public service is the impact of austerity and poverty and the day-to-day -day experiences of families. And it is worth saying, isn't it, we've been talking in this conversation so far as if social work is just about families and children, but social work mm. is about a much wider range of people that you work with. Yes, yes, exactly. So 
my, my specialism in children and families, but we work in a number of different contexts and settings with older adults, those with uh, mental health difficulties or, or just need support. So yeah, social work is a, is a varied discipline. So let's talk a little bit about crescendo. You just talked about the, the difficulties of austerity. Is crescendo in, in some way papering over those cracks? I'm glad you asked that because it is, a, it is a fair critique. I think you can hold two, two competing ideas in mind. One, that there needs to be fundamental structural change. But two, that doesn't mean we shouldn't do something in the meantime. So how we position our work is that it sits between full system change and no change at all. So it's about doing something to chip away at those barriers that prevent excellent social work. And, and what does that look like in practice? Can you tell us about some of the changes you've been able to make by working with social workers? Yeah, definitely. So we've been a pilot for the last year and we've worked with three local authorities with their children and families social work departments. And we developed this approach called Small Changes, which works with teams of social workers to think about what are those big barriers that get in your way um, from you actually wanting to do the work that you want to do. So you can imagine we have IT systems, um, masses of emails, all these big chunky barriers that kind of often seem quite overwhelming. And we borrow an idea around 15% solutions. I don't know if you've heard of it, but this idea of that if we were not trying to address this and become completely overwhelmed, if we were to do something like 15% or something small to chip away at this, what, what might that look like? And what we've actually found is when you make change a bit more manageable and it's led by social workers in terms of what are you experiencing day to day and it comes from the bottom up, it actually can have um, a remarkable effect. So these, these small changes, they may sound trivial, but they, they're the things that frustrate social workers day in, day out. So for example, we work with one local authority where to arrange a taxi for a child who was um, in care, you had to complete three or four different forms. So it would take you about two hours to get a taxi. Oh. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm not joking. So when working with a team, you're like, why is that in place? No one knew. <laughs> so no one knew why that was in place. So we just stripped it back, changed it, made it easy. Social workers, what do you want to do? And it just saved stress. It saved time. Essentially, is that we're trying to affect time. And then another one, which is more bold, we were, we were working with this specialist team that works with adolescents that are at risk of going missing or being exploited. And so their bread and butter, even more than social workers, was working with adolescents like, like for the majority of their time. But they were being pulled to like all these pointless meetings where they didn't actually have a say or know why they were there. So they were like, well, we're going to do this small change where on our email signatures, we say that we're not available in the afternoons because we're with young people. And they all started to do it and just also then voice it with other professionals. Um, and they were quite, um, they were quite firm in terms of like, no, we're not going, which I was a bit worried about, but actually it worked out quite well. And just something like that, where they like took a stand, was able to affect the work that they completed with young people. How did we get to the stage where 80% of the time is spent filling in, you know, audit, bureaucracy and so on? It's a good question. I, I think there's a few, few different reasons. I think you've got to think about the impact of new public management in terms of kind of these ideas from the private sector coming into the public domain where the focus has been more on performance indicators and targets. 
but then coupled with this idea of risk aversion yeah. so these big kind of national tragedies when yeah. when a child dies in awful circumstances the response is understandably to an extent one of panic or blame or what's yeah. going on and i think the response of the system is to kind of create new layers of safety now we do have a good child protection system in some respects in terms of safety but that focus on it has kind of in my opinion crippled kind of social workers autonomy and we've created all these layers of oversight and management that actually stifle social workers being able to go and do the job so tell us a little bit about the impact you feel Crescendo's had today and where you're going to go next. Yeah, sure. So as I said, we're, we're in this pilot phase and we've, we've worked with three local authorities where we've created this raft of small changes. And to, to be honest with you, we've had, we've had some success in some areas. Others, it's kind of like that initial kind of upstart and petered out a little bit. So we're reflecting on that. But actually, in terms of our achievements, what we've actually found and we were surprised by this finding that it's created more connection within teams and actually had a positive impact on morale and well-being within just social workers. So interestingly, we wanted to create more time for them to do the work. We weren't aware of the fact that it would actually make them feel more connected to their, their jobs. We've seen a real optimism. So people have kind of said that because we're being engaged in changes and we're making things that are quite manageable, it's made us feel more positive and optimistic. So I had one um, social worker who I think they said they've been working there for 20 years. She noticed that people were striking up casual conversations about um, small changes they wanted to make. And there was this kind of buzz around the office, which was really great to see. We're collating all of our evidence and we're, we're going to release it in the new year to, to share with the sector to hopefully see if other people are interested in in trying to make small changes because it's hard out there, but we are passionate to know that we can do something in the meantime, hopefully. Well, look, Ryan Wise, it's really been interesting to talk to you um, and I'm sure people are really interested to hear about Crescendo and the initiative you're taking. Thanks so much for joining us. No worries. Thank you for having me. With us now is Lisa Hackett, who is Chief Social Worker at Frontline, which is the UK's largest social work charity. Hello, Lisa. Hi, Jeff. Hi. Good to be here. Well, I'm really interested to talk to you. And I thought a good place to start might be your story, your personal connection with social work, which which led you into this line of work. Yeah, more than happy to talk through that. I'd probably start by saying, Jeff, that Social work's actually always been part of my life. I was adopted in the 70s. Me too. Ah, wow, that's something we could catch up on. Yes. Um, and yeah, so I was adopted with my twin brother. And I guess this has definitely been a motivation because I think what that experience did was it helped me to understand that what distinguishes those that kind of need social work support and intervention from those that, that don't is usually just circumstances. And I think that on that basis, therefore, there's very little that, that actually separates us from the children and families that, that we work with. What age were you adopted at? We were children. It's all a bit hazy. I'm not sure about you because... Um, well, I was a tiny baby, so th th there was no social work presence really in my life. And only quite recently... My mum died and I was looking through her things and I found the piece of paper that social services gave her. And it was like one typed side of A4. Here's what you do with an adopted kid. Good luck. And I was, I was quite amazed at, at that, really. And I imagine the situation's extremely different now. 
it's very, very different now. And um, yeah, like like you, same sort of experience, very scant information about birth family. And, and I think that our parents weren't really prepared for what it feels like to adopt children and the realities of some of those feelings and working them through. So I'm pleased to say that things have definitely changed for sure. Yeah. And then sort of that understanding led to you becoming a social worker and you've worked in many different areas of the role what do you think is the most rewarding part of the job there's actually so much rewards that you get from from this job it's hard to pinpoint one I think that I'd probably go back to my first role, which was in children's homes. And this was in the mid 90s. So a long time ago, that was probably the most rewarding, but also perhaps one of the most challenging roles I've done. And and some of the rewards about it were, you know, being able to be a direct part and daily sort of influence on the lives of children so that kind of day-to-day contact I just found you know an absolute privilege to be there when children woke up when they went to bed so when they went to school Um, and I learned so much from that role in terms of thinking on my feet and really understanding the the lived experiences of young people and and the importance of just just being with them, just listening to them, like sitting with them, valuing them. They are the most remarkable young people, the young people that are in our care system. You know, they are moving through life with some of the most adverse experiences of loss and trauma. I learned so much from them. They were such a lot of fun as well at times. You've worked as a a lecturer in social work and I wondered about the underlying principles of the job. So just to compare it with education, for example, something I'll often hear is we've got an education system that teaches kids like lists of kings and queens, which doesn't necessarily equip them for what life will be like. Are the principles that underpin social work the right ones for today? I think so. I think broadly, I mean, you know, we learn and acquire new knowledge all the time. The Equality Act is an example of that. The protected characteristics, you know, we didn't have them before 2010. But by and large, I think that the principles for social work, education and training are pretty sound. I think that we can't divorce theory from the day-to-day task of social work. Social work... um, It doesn't just require empathy and uh, compassion, commitment, you know, that absolutely needs that. But it also requires technical skills. You know, if you're working with a young person who is at risk, say, of, of exploitation, you need to be able to draw on theory to inform your thinking. And that might be attachment theory. It might be trauma informed practice. And you also need to understand contextual factors. So what what causes vulnerabilities in a child? Because it's not inherent to that child. And often that's things like poverty, it's parental mental ill health. And, and that's compounded by structural barriers, thinking of racism, one's ability, gender, identity, sexuality, and, and how all those things contribute to, to vulnerabilities. And I think what social work education does really well is give language to social justice and the importance of it and values and behaviours. We should talk about the way in which high profile, tragic cases in, in children's social work obviously make headlines. And I guess it makes social work a less attractive 
profession and, and also perhaps makes people more likely to leave the profession. I don't, don't want to say that the tragedies aren't the thing because clearly they are, but, but today we're talking about the profession itself. Can you talk to us about the ways in which those are handled Personally, I think that's something that we could all do. All of us as working in in the social care sector, we could all do better. Um, And we could try and move this forward in terms of the public perception of social workers when, you know, things do go wrong with children. And it's an absolute tragedy when that does happen. And I can tell you now there'll be no social worker up and down the country that that hasn't grieved for those children we've heard about during the last year, you know, that doesn't feel it acutely. People come into the profession to work with, support and protect children. So when it goes wrong, it is deeply painful. Obviously not as painful it is as for the families of those children, but it, it's something that social workers will will grapple with. And for me, I think that the sector needs to be more vocal in championing social workers and the work they do. There are so many children that are benefiting from and experiencing great social work. We clapped during the pandemic and I did for the NHS and and I think that was so so needed and and deserved. But I often think, you know, where is that applause for social workers, you know, who who during the pandemic were working and had so many more families that needed support and intervention. So I think that that's definitely something as a sector that we we need to work on shifting this kind of public perception because social workers do the most amazing work. It's work that keeps in the main children and and adults safe. It's work that privileges keeping families together where possible and you know, social workers are, they're the voice for those people in society that often are perceived as problematic, as difficult. And I think it's a measure of our society, how we treat those that have the least or the littlest or are coming up the last. And and for me, on that basis, social workers and the sector is an absolute powerhouse for good and for social justice. And we should be speaking a truth about that. It should be something quite beautiful that we have decided as a society that there's this this institution in place that provides support. But too often, I think people think I've I've failed as a member of that society if I need that support in the way they they don't with other services, perhaps. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that there's that there's that stigma around. Having a social worker, you know, what will people think? How will I explain that to people? Or it means something negative. And and really, you know, in many cases, it, it means something positive. It means accessing help. It means accessing support. It means getting resources for your family it might might mean the difference of your family staying together you know that that the outcomes can be so 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 brilliant is social work something you look at how it's done internationally and learn lessons is is there a utopia of social work i think that for all we do have problems with our our social work system sometimes you know how how it's funded how it's executed how we do stuff but you know i would say that i think 
lots of countries would look at ours and think actually they've got a pretty good system for protecting caring for vulnerable people in in their communities you know we have various pieces of groundbreaking legislation i'm thinking about the children's act there's others that pertain to adults that actually send a signal about our commitment to people in our society that need support care and protection we have something on the podcast called the Jeffocracy, which is our utopia. Um, if we appointed you the government's chief social worker, what is the first thing you would do on day one? I would pull together a group of sector leaders, um, directors of children's services, people with lived experience to really focus on how we change the perception. For me, I think there's something around how we shift perception of social work and how we we make it more of an inviting profession we help the public understand it more and I suppose the other thing that I'm really passionate about is the outcomes for children in our care system it's where I, I started as a as a child as a baby and it's where my first job was and I, I know the uh, the care review recommended that young people who had experience of care should have status as a protected characteristic and I really think that they should and that's something if I was in charge I would be like right let's do it let's let's push this through because the outcomes for these children are are so poor still and and that's not to say the system's not without its merits but it is inescapable that achievements in GCSEs in education are, are, are dwarfed by national averages they're much more likely to face exclusions find themselves in in the youth offending system I think 25% of the adult prison population have previously been in care and care people make up about one percent of the population so the the odds are stacked against them let's aim higher like let's invest in these children they should feel like they belong that they belong to us you know these children are our children lisa you're a great advocate for social work and it's been so interesting to talk to you lisa hackett thank you so much oh thank you jeff Well, I'm slightly in the dark here because I only did one of the interviews. What did you think? Well, I really enjoyed it. I'm so glad that we did the episode. There's no getting away from the fact that it is a a difficult profession and it sounds like the amount of time spent doing paperwork and process is way out of kilter. It seems like some of the systems need modernising. It seems like it's under-resourced. So there are undoubtedly problems and and not least that in terms of the public it's it's a bit like as i said only hearing about doctors or people in the medical profession when there's a malpractice suit you you don't really hear about the work that happens every day and i just think we should be better at telling people about it basically telling people life's hard and there is this service that we've created as a society to help you through it instead of it seeming like you've failed as a member of society and we're going to step in and intervene. That's really good, Jeff. That's really good. I think I really like that. It's something to be really proud of that it exists. Yeah, I really like the way you described that. I think it's quite a heroic job, actually. Yeah, and when you listen to what it entails, the skill set and the knowledge base, it's it asks a lot of people. With a lot of blame to be apportioned yeah. if things go wrong. Yeah. It feels like social workers get the blame if it goes wrong and don't get any of the credit if it goes right. Exactly. 
send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Ho, ho, ho. We're in the outro, ho, ho. We are in the outro, ho, ho, ho. Ho, ho, ho. The outro, ho. Ho, ho, ho. Outro, ho, ho, ho. Yes, of course. Um, Speaking of which, have have your boys had Christmas concerts? Yes. Well, actually, it's funny you should say that because... My kid's school has an orchestra attached to it because it was an orchestra that lost its premises and is now attached to the school. And they turned the school, essentially, the school gym into essentially a sort of, I think you might call it a nightclub, Jeff. Oh, you would have been in your element then. Well, OK, that, no need to be sarcastic. <laughs> um, it was honestly absolutely amazing. They had the orchestra playing. You know, um, like typically they don't have orchestras in nightclubs. You have been in a nightclub, well, haven't you? Well, you know, I... What, I what do you think ter- happens in nightclubs? I'd use the term loosely. <laughs> nightclub is probably wrong. Speakeasy? Oh, are you thinking like a 1920s nightclub? Yeah, I'm very 1920s. Honestly, it was like, it was absolutely brilliant. Anyway. Well, that's, uh, that's completely upstaged. Uh, anything I might have been able to tell you about, uh, Eugene bellowing out White Christmas and Santa Claus is coming to town. Well, that's important. That's important. One of the dads behind me was singing along and he was going a bit too big on the vocal ad-libs. Yeah. I think he's listened to the Bruce Springsteen version a few too many times. I think it's good to be creative. I think he was pulling focus away from the children. Mm. I added some tasteful harmonies here and there, but don't want to overdo it, do you? No, you don't. Should we thank our guests? Let's thank our guests. Thanks to Ruth Allen, Lisa Hackett and Ryan Wise. Emma Corsham is our audio producer. Rachel Barmer produces the content supported by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our idents Ed Seed, composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cole. He's been Ed Miliband. He's been Jeff Lloyd. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. 